Well, we are starting into a, a new series, and it's going to kind of be broken because we've got a, a few things coming up. Um, so n- next week, obviously, is the 4th of July, and we'll be gone. And then the next week, just to keep you abreast of things that are coming up, on July 11th, we have the special privilege of doing an ordination service. Pastor Mike has finished the process, and so uh, we will be having an ordination service on J- July 11th. And so we're, we'll do this week um, in our, our David series, and then... We'll have two weeks, and then we'll be back into it again and, and continue on. Um, but I'm pretty excited about the, this series. I've been thinking about it for a while. And, and what does it mean to be a, a person after God's own heart? You know, David, that was one of the things that, that he has classified as, that, that he's known as, as when, when life is over and God weighs and looks over all of David's life, it's it said that David is a man after God's own heart. Which is kind of interesting if we think about it, isn't it? Because David, David did some good things and he, was, he had great integrity on the front end of his life. But as is often the case, he got into power and, and he made some really, really bad decisions. He, he, the man committed adultery and then sent the, the husband of the woman that he committed adultery off, off to war and then pulled back and, and essentially murdered the guy. And God still says at the end of his life that David was a man after my own heart. I mean, it gives hope for us, right? Because I'm, I'm going to go ahead and guess that as significant as your faults and failings have been in this room, none of us have murdered the person with whose spouse we were having an affair, right? I, we, can, we can throw that out there. I'm just guessing. If you have, you're really good at hiding your sin, and we need to repent and have a totally different conversation than the one we're going to have this morning. There's other sermons to deal with that. But it is interesting to consider that. It sets the bar pretty low as far as what God can forgive and how God, God can work in and through us. And that's not to minimize or trivialize sin or failure, but, but it does show the exceeding grace of God. That God, can, that God can move and work in and through and beyond our failures and that God sees beyond the one-offs and, and the, the, the falling off of the proverbial wagons, which is, which is an important thing in our culture, isn't it? In a culture and in a world where we live, where everything is, is in the public eye all the time, right? Everything is in the public eye, and, and the internet is forever. We, we, can, we can't fall off a skateboard without someone catching a picture of it and making us internet famous. And, and so the, the, in a world where everything is seen and everything is codified and everything is recorded and, and everything ends up it, it, on a record book, it is so hard to move beyond those mistakes that we made. What happens one time or what is said many years ago when we were a kid on our Facebook or Instagram can be the thing that defines us and determines our path forward. And sometimes we allow that to determine our definition of ourselves. I'll be honest with you. My, my dad, when I, was, when I was younger, I remember having a conversation with my biological father. And we were driving down the road and he was talking with someone else in the car about the, the leadership and what he was doing at the, the plant that he was working at, the, the RV factory. And what it took to be a leader in that context and what it took to be a foreman and a supervisor. And, and I remember thinking, well, I want to do that. I, not necessarily work in an RV factory. But I, I want to I be a leader. And I said it. I said, you know, I really want to do that. I want to lead people. I, I want to I be able to, to help people along in their lives and, and give them instructions and teach them how to do things. And my dad looked me straight in the face and said, you'll never be a leader. You're too soft. You'll never be a leader. You're too soft. 
If, if I'm honest with you now, even standing on this stage, that is something that still resonates in my mind. Every time I make a mistake, every time I make a decision that goes off the rails, every time I get critical comments from somebody in the community or in the church, my mind goes back to that and I think to myself, maybe he was right. Maybe I will never really be a leader. Maybe what I'm doing here is just posing, I'm just playing the game. You, you want to know part of the reason that I went through and did all of the schooling that I did? It was because I, I, I lived in a situation where I was told you will never be a leader. You will never be good enough. And you start to equate that with God. You think that with people, right? If I am not good enough for people, if I'm not good enough to serve with people, then what does that mean for God? What must God be thinking when he looks down at me? One of the things I love about the story of David is that, that when it begins, God, right from the off, shows that God is not looking at what everybody else sees. God isn't seeing David's career. God isn't seeing the, the, the things that David is doing out in the field. God isn't seeing David's failings with his family. God doesn't see David the way his family does. God sees David for something beyond what anybody else can see. And God evaluates on a different scale in a different way. And I would like to argue that as we look at the life of David, it all starts at the beginning. And everything that we see in David, everything that we see coming out of David throughout his life, goes back to the fact that God evaluated on a different scale and David took that to heart as the Holy Spirit indwelled him and led him forward. Go with me to prayer to the Lord as we turn our attention now to the story about David. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you for your great love with which you've loved us. I do thank you for the calling that you've placed on each of our lives. And Lord, I, I believe with all of my heart that everybody's sitting in this room whether they've been believers for years and years and years, whether they are new believers or whether they, they are just now hearing about Jesus for the first time in their life, God, that you have a plan and a purpose for their lives, that you have a calling particular to them. And that, Lord, you see something in them. There's potential and power in them that they themselves can't see. And that, God, you want to, to move and work in them to make them a person after your own heart. To use them for your purposes. To make a difference in this world. God, help us to see that as we begin to look at the life of David and to walk through these chapters. Speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're going to start in verse 1. 1 Samuel 16, 1, and we're going to read through verse 13 this morning. It says this, 1 Samuel 16, 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. 
When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Which is kind of funny. Brief side note, that just struck me. The dude just had seven kids walk by him, and Samuel has the audacity to say, that's it? <laughs> They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep, Samuel said. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives here. So Jesse sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel went to Ramah. So we have the story of the beginning, the, the anointing of, of David and, and the, the, the beginning of this new era of, of Israel's history. And in order for us to understand really what's going on here, though, we have to go back and consider what has happened before. Because what's happening is really uncommon. It's unprecedented. And, and Samuel even notes it as, as things are going along, that God sends him. He says to him, hey, Samuel, I want you to go to the place I'm going to send you. I want you to go to Bethlehem, stop mourning for Saul, who was the current king, and I'm going to send you to this other place because I'm going to pick a different king, a better king. And in previous verses, God has said, a king that is going to be after my own heart. This is not what one does, especially in this culture and context. One did not anoint a new leader from outside of the family of the current leader. Especially not while the current leader was still living. As Samuel notes, this is not going to go well for me. If Saul, the current king, finds out what's going on, mind you, Saul has a whole army at his disposal that was currently assembled. And, and in order for Samuel to get from where he was to where David was, he actually had to pass through Saul's hometown. So Samuel says, God... If I do this, if I go through with what you're telling me to do, this is not going to be good for my health. This is a bad idea. Samuel had been, Saul had been king for a while. And Saul was picked for a particular reason, and, and God, God allowed for it. But, but both Saul and David teach us something and show us something that's important about how God sees things and how God works. And the problem with how we see things and the issue that we see from the outset of the story, from the beginning until we get through the first three sons, is this. That what we see doesn't always tell the whole story. What we see doesn't always tell the whole story. And really, we could stop there. That, that should be all that I have to say as a pastor. As people of faith, should we not more than anyone else understand this? 
As people who believe and look forward to things that, that we cannot with 100, you can say all you want. Oh, I believe with 100% certainty. That's great. You can believe with 100% certainty, but you cannot factually know with 100% certainty. Hope always looks to that which we cannot know which we cannot necessarily prove. As people of faith, we are constantly looking beyond the proverbial pale, aren't we? We're always looking to something that we cannot validate, something more, something bigger, something beyond what our eyes can sense and understand in front of us. Yet we fall into the same trap over and over again. The same issue that we see with Saul and with David and with Samuel is the same issue and the same trap that we fall in today. But faith is predicated on what we can't see. And the issue that I see in this passage and in so many things with us as the church and as people of faith, the people of God, is that when our evaluations and decisions are based primarily upon external perceptions, we walk a precarious path. When we will only believe and act based upon what we can see and what we can prove empirically, there will be limitations on what we will and will not do and can and cannot do in the name of God. Faith requires faith. Walking in faith requires us moving into the unknown and the uncomfortable at times. Trusting that God is who he said he is and will do what he said he'd do. And, and, and believing the truth about what God says even about us and about others, even when it does not seem at the moment beneficial or accurate. The people of God, as we consider the passage that we're looking at, both in the nation of Israel and in the church today, have a long history of adjusting course based on the age-old adage, everyone else is doing it. Again, I find this quasi-humorous. That we look throughout the history of the church, we look throughout the history of, of the nation of Israel, some of the greatest mistakes of the church, some of the greatest mistakes of the people of God, some of the greatest mistakes of the nation of Israel come not because God misled them, but because people began looking around and saying, hey, everyone else is doing this, that's what we, we should be doing that too, it's working for them, why won't it work for us? That just seems like a better way. The very fact the very fact that Israel even had a king in the first place is validation of this truth. We turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5. We're starting in verse 4. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You're old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us. Such as all the other nations have. From the outset, the, 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 the pursuit of a king and, and a physical leader that was going to lead them in the here and now and be a ruler over them was an abdication of the calling that God had for them. From the beginning, it, it, was, it was supposed to be that God was going to be their ruler, that they would function as a theocracy, that God would be their king, and that the prophet would then be their, vo their, their mouthpiece, that the prophet would say, thus says the Lord, and the people would respond accordingly. From the outset, it, there was never supposed to be a king. There was never supposed to be a ruling class. There was supposed to be God and God's mouthpiece, and the people were supposed to respond appropriately. But the elders of Israel, the leaders of Israel demanded a king 
And notice their rationale. So we can be like all the other nations. 1 Samuel 8, 7, we see that, that, that God grants their request and that, that their request is not a rejection of Samuel as the prophet of God, but a rejection of God himself. If we look at verse 7 of chapter 8, it says, Listen to all the people are saying to you now. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God to this point had fought their battles. God to this point had provided for their needs. God to this point had led them along and had really done them right. Anytime that they had issues, it wasn't because God had failed them. It was because they went off the rails and did their own thing. And here they go again. In their mind, God wasn't good enough. And the Lord, as is often his case, often his way, as the people push to do their own thing their own way, God says, you want it? Fine. You've got it. Interesting, isn't it? Because is that not how God often works with us? We know the truth. We know what God's word says. But if we push hard enough back against God, God is not going to force us down the path less traveled. There's a reason that it's a path less traveled. We want to wander off our own way, do our own thing. We want to follow the wide path, right? Jesus even says and and, and illustrates this very thing. Narrow is the path, and few are those who walk it. Wide is that goes to eternal life. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many are on it. God even, though in his grace, warns the people of Israel that there's a cost for going their own way. There's a cost for the choice that they're making. There's a cost to evaluating what's going on and making their decision based upon what they see in all of the other nations around them. There's a cost to trying to do it like, quote unquote, everybody else. Look in 1 Samuel 8, 10 10 through 18. God tells him, so Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry for relief from the king that you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. The Lord says, hey, you you want this? This is what you want? Before you take this, just understand, you want to be like everybody else. This is the cost of being like everybody else, and there is a cost. You know, the grass always seems greener on the other side until we get to the other side of the fence. People of God say, we want this king. God warns them, and God gives them a choice. But ultimately, the people decide, "We, we want the king. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, it says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. We could take that a step further, right? Because it's not just Samuel they're refusing to listen to. The people are actually, in fact, failing to listen to the voice of God through Samuel. But the people refused to listen. 
No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. With a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. That really struck me this week. We keep coming back to this, and I don't want to, to linger on this too long, but that seems like a downgrade to me, right? Like, I, I, want, I want a powerful, mighty warrior king to fight for me. Like, you had God, right? Like, I, there's no way you cut this that this is a win. There's no way that you cut this that this is better. Like, the invisible, immortal, omnipresent, omnipowerful God of the universe is fighting your battles with and for you. And you're going to say, nah, we don't want that. We'd rather have that dude. Bob. Bob, fight our battles for us. That's essentially what's going on. It doesn't matter how big Bob is or how great Bob is or how much of a ninja Bob is. He's still just Bob. This is God. God or Bob. It's funny Because it's true. How often do we ourselves choose Bob over God? We want this because everybody else is doing this. Oh, but the the Bible says we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't act that way. Oh, but culture, the the cultural flow is this. This is what's popular. This is what's working for everybody else. This is what's cool. This is what's hip. This is what's marketable. This is what's making money. This is what people respond to. We want Bob. God just isn't as cool. It's essentially what's happening here. We must take care not to allow common practice and cultural norms to become the deciding factor in what we do and how we live as the people of God. I cannot say that clearly enough. And it's easy for us. We, we like to take this and, and say, well, that's why we've got to stick to the old time religion and the, the old way of doing church because then we won't deviate. No, 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 no. There's plenty of ways the old time religion and the old time church has deviated from the ways of God. You realize that, that we made that up, right? That, that the way that we do church and the way that we function, whether it's now or then or in the future, is ultimately going to adapt and adjust based upon the needs of the people at the time. That, that's okay. That, there's a good thing to that. But the problem is when we sell out the heart of the message and the truth of who God is and the center of that, and we, we not only move away from the methodology of worshiping and pursuing God, but we leave the message itself. We leave God behind. Like, well, we, we would just keep the message, but the message is kind of old and archaic. The truth of Scripture is it's really out of touch with modern, with modern times. So let's just adapt and adjust and let's, let's progress. Let's move it into the future. Let's make it more palatable for the people. part of the problem with making our decisions based on what we see in the lives of others is we are inevitably working with only part of the data. We only see small portions of the full picture, which will inevitably over time lead to us making faulty and fallible decisions. We think even so now we, we see that the people of Israel are like, we need a king. We've got to be like everybody else. And the Lord says, hey, fine, whatever you want, that's what you want. Do what you're going to do, but it's going to go bad. I'm telling you. And so the people are like, fine, it's on us. Let's go. They begin looking for a king. And on the surface, as we go forward, Saul seems like the ideal choice for a king. Take note of this. Saul was ideal. He was the picture perfect king. You could not have found a better king. He was the ultimate Bob. 1 Samuel 9.12 says this. That he, he's ahead of you now. He's come to town today. And wait, that's the wrong verse. Um, so Saul is, Samuel is looking for the king. 
And, and we see that, that Sam, Saul has gone away, and, and we, we look in the scriptures, and it tells us that, that he walks into town, and they find Saul, and Saul is a head taller than everyone else. That he's more handsome than everyone else, and a head taller than everyone else. 9, 1 through 2, I just read that wrong. It says, there was a Benjamite, Benjamite a man stand, of standing, whose name was Kish. So he's, he's, he's from a good family. He's a good family, y'all. Man of Kish, they named Kish a, a good standing in the community. The son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Af- Afia Benjamin, of Benjamin. So you got this guy is in the right lineage. And, and Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome as a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than everyone else. Now listen, if you are looking for a king, you want that guy that's got that right look, right? You want the guy that, that has the, the, the strong features of a, the John Wayne type, muscular man, man's man, right? This is what they're looking for. And not only that, but the guy is a head taller than everyone else. You can't miss him in a crowd. That's what you want. That's, we're going to see Goliath right, later, right? Like, Philistines figure this out, and they're like, we got a better one. Like, you got one that's a head taller? This guy's a person taller than everybody. Our Bob is better than your Bob. They, they, were, they were evaluating purely upon externals. I remember basketball, when I was playing in high school, we always used to do that. That we would walk into a gym, and, and, or we would see the other team walk into our gym, and our evaluation happened long before they ever touched the court. And I remember one time we were playing for, against a team out of Indianapolis, which was intimidating enough for us, being from Elkhart. Here this team comes from Indianapolis, and they walk into the gym, and they have five, the first five players off the bus into the gym are 6'4 are and taller. And the last guy that walks in is 7'2". He was huge enormous. I was our backup center at 6'1". The guy was a foot and an inch taller than me, off the bus, and he walks in, and we all looked at each other and said, this game is over. We might as well cash it in, just give them the game and go home, because they're fixing on embarrassing us. And we got on the court, and not one of those six-foot-plus guys started the game. They all were on the bench. The only one that started was the seven-foot-two guy, because how do you leave him on the bench? And he jumped at the beginning, he jumped, we didn't even bother jumping. He jumped for the tip-off, he tipped the ball to his teammate, they came down to the other end, and the first pass, they passed it to him, and it went off his knees and out of bounds. And I was like, well, we just got to get back into his rhythm. The next four passes did the same thing. And all of a sudden, his height didn't mean so much. He ended up sitting the rest of the game on the bench. They had five, six-foot four and taller bench warmers on their team. We demolished them by 45 points. It was a proverbial bloodletting. And when we evaluate them as coming in, like it shows you that, that what you see is not always everything. What you see doesn't always indicate ability. The externals don't always indicate the, the potential outcome. It doesn't indicate potential. Sure, you can't teach tall. That, that's true. But you also really can't teach coordination. We see Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. The truth is he was actually a good fighter. But Saul's heart did not match his appearance. 
He may have been a beautiful Bob on the outside, but he was an ugly man on the inside. And Saul had a very bad habit of doing what was right in his own eyes. He, he, he actually truly represented the people of Israel and was often swayed by popular opinion and the allure of his own position and power. His heart wasn't devoted to the Lord. And so we start with, as a whole long introduction going through before, but we come back to our passage in, in 1 Samuel 16, and we start in verse 1, and it tells us that, that, that the Lord calls to Samuel and said, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him? The people had chosen him. But as Saul failed to do what God was commanding him to do, as Saul failed to ultimately lead and direct in, in a way that was consistent with what God expected for the leader of the people of God, God says, I'm done with him. I have rejected him. When you and I sense the Spirit is moving, we must follow. Even if that means moving away from the thing that we chose, moving away from the thing that we prefer, moving away from the thing that we like. Samuel here is grieving over Saul. What, what does that mean? Well, it could mean one of several things. First, it could mean that, that Saul is heartbroken over Saul's continued failures and the damage that it has and will do to the people of God. Two, it could mean that, that Samuel is struggling with yet another failure on his watch and having a hard time cutting bait and moving on. Remember, at the beginning, this whole thing started because Samuel's sons were wicked, and the people didn't want them to lead in Samuel's place. Or third, it could be that he's not looking forward to the part he has to play as they move through the mess into the future. Samuel is, is really having a hard time following God into the unknown of what's next. I would argue that number three is probably most likely. That, a, a, that Samuel can't see where the story is going at this point. The things have deviated and gone too far afield, and he's struggling with it. And, and in, in fact, may, maybe part of it is that Samuel has spent so much time now investing that we can look back and see at least three times where Saul has gone his own way and done his own thing. And Samuel comes along and was like, man, what is wrong with you? Come back. Like, get back on task. He's invested a lot of time in this guy. He's walked with him through many, many things and, and, and tried and has a vested interest in his success moving into the future. And he can't see beyond the path that they've chosen that they're going to be like everyone else. Saul has been king. His son should be seen king. This should be a monarchy that, that goes on into the future. And he clings to the mistake. I, I saw a meme the other day on Facebook that actually really hit me. And it said this, don't cling to a mistake just because you spent a lot of time making it. Don't cling to a mistake just because you spent a lot of time making it. That, that, that's so profound to me. Because is that not what we do as people? We make the mistake and then we assume, oh, we can fix this. We, it's, okay, it's okay. We can fix this. And, and, and as we continue to invest time into mis fixing the mistake that we make, we, we oftentimes just continue down that path, don't we? And we continue breaking more that which was already broken. There comes a time where we know that what we are doing and where we are going is so inconsistent with where God is leading that what we have to do is just cut bait and follow God where he's going next. Don't cling to a mistake just because you spent a lot of time making it. Saul's failure was moving before God's spirit had led. 
his, his failure was continuing to make the mistakes in his own strength, in his own power, in his own wisdom. Samuel's failure was not moving when God's spirit had led. And we need to understand something. Delayed obedience is, in that moment, disobedience. But the truth is that Samuel ultimately does what Saul failed to do. He obeys the Lord. And he moves on and goes to anoint this king. But we see he, he, makes, he moves on from the previous mistake only to make the same mistake again. Which brings us to another point. We need to learn to see as God sees. We need to learn to see as God sees. We quite naturally will default to what we've done before, which is exactly what we see Samuel doing. Go to verse 6, chapter 16. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw, saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. And God has to step in and be like, bro, Come on, man. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. We, is that not what God just said about Saul? Hey, don't hold on to him because I have rejected him. Remind me again, we just read it a moment. What, was the, what were the metrics that they utilized to determine that Saul should be king? He was handsome and he was tall. And he went off rails and failed. So what do they do? We come to the next place, and God says, I'm picking another king. And what does Samuel do? He's like, look, it's another tall, handsome guy. Bob! Samuel measures Eliab's merit with the same metrics he used for Saul. He's still evaluating others based on externals, popular expectations, and opinions. He's just, he's just barely finished mourning over the unmitigated disaster of Saul's reign, and he immediately moves to make the exact same mistake again. Albert Einstein is credited with saying, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. But is that not what we do? I, I mean, Proverbs tell us, like a dog returns to its vomit, so people will return to their sin. We naturally will get in the groove and do what is common because it is comfortable, even if we know that it's wrong. God tells him, hey, don't, don't consider his appearance. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People, we as humans, naturally evaluate based upon outward appearance. We evaluate others, we evaluate circumstances, we evaluate opportunities based on what we can see. You know, they always say that, that there, you can never redo a first impression, which is true. First impression is bad, you've got something to overcome. But the first impression does not indicate the longevity of what that relationship is going to yield. We need to be careful about not evaluating people because of a bad first impression. We need to be careful about not evaluating situations because it doesn't look the way that we think it should look. It doesn't feel the way that we should think it should feel. It doesn't meet our expectations externally. 
We must learn to look beyond the externals. Listen, I'm not going to lie to you. This is a passage that often speaks to me because as a young man, I was constantly evaluated by what people could see. I was constantly evaluated. And it wasn't just like physical seeing. All people could see of me a lot of times was the reality of my family life. I remember shortly after Robin and I got engaged that Robin was working in, in north central Indiana in Elkhart and someone from the school that I had attended, the Christian school, came and were picking up an instrument at the store where she worked. And as they were talking, it came about that, that she, Robin knew me and that was engaged with, to me and this lady knew me. And she said, oh, really, Jeremy Myers, like, how, how is he doing? What's going on with him? And Robin goes, he's actually doing really well. He's at Grace College and he's studying to be a youth pastor. And she said, oh, he must have really turned his life around. And Robin's like, what are you talking about? See, for her, all she could see was that I was from a divorced, broken home. For her, all she could see was that my dad was a partier and was cheating and running around on my mom. For, for her, all she could see was that my dad was involved in drugs. For her, all she could see was that I had an earring and brightly colored, multicolored hair. For her, all she could see is that I didn't dress and look like all the other rich kids in my school because I couldn't. It's hard to look preppy when you go to Goodwill to shop. All they could see was the externals. You know what? We still deal with that sometimes. And, and people often ask me, well, why, why don't you dress thusly as a pastor? Why do, you, why do you choose to? And it is a choice. I decided a long time ago that I was not going to take my earrings out for any church. That I would not do it. Because if you judge me when I walk on, onto your campus because of a couple of ounces of metal in my, my ears, you know what you're going to do to everyone else that walks through this door that looks different than you? You're going to judge them based upon their externals. But when the craziest dude on campus stands on stage every Sunday, it's a lot harder to judge harshly those that are sitting in the pews next to you. It's an intentional choice. We have to learn to get beyond the externals. This is a lesson that we as the people of God, it's something that I deal with probably once every six months, if not more. Because it's a lesson that we as the people of God have struggled to learn throughout the ages. We really like to evaluate worth based on what we can see. Church dress, earrings, tattoos, whether or not someone wears white before Memorial Day. We're good at that, aren't we? Like, we are good at thinking of different filters through which we can look at people to evaluate whether or not they're worthy, whether or not they're our kind of people, whether or not they're good Methodist, or whether or not they're good Baptist, or whether or not they're, they're... put your tag. And we look at them based upon these externals, and really what we're looking at is, they are, are they a good me? Do they match my expectations of what the best me would be? Do they match my expectations of what I've been taught a good person looks like and acts like and dress likes and talks like? Which is interesting, isn't it? Because we go back and, and Samuel's doing the same thing and God is telling Samuel, don't do it. Don't. It didn't work out just here. Why are you doing the same garbage over here? Do you really think you're going to do the same thing and get a different result? The Lord gives a different metric. The Lord says people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is more concerned with the content of a person's character 
and their devotion to him than the details of their appearance. God is more concerned with, with the content of who a person is internally, who they are going to, who, because that's going to determine the outworking of their life. And so God is concerned with that. God is telling us that we need to be concerned with that. We need to slow our roll. And rather than evaluating and making judgments and assessments and assertions right out the, the, the gate when someone walks in front of our field of view, we need to slow ourselves down. Because that doesn't tell us who that person really is. God is concerned with the content of a person's character. Notice what happens. The Lord rejects all of Jesse's sons. And this just jumped out at me today as we're reading this. What must it have felt like to have been son number four in following? Right? You look at the passage and it tells us, hey, and, and in walks Eliab. And Samuel's like, this is the guy. And God's like, "Mm mm-mm, nope. Then in walks Abinadab. And Samuel's like, yeah. And God's like, no. And then in walks Shema. And, and God's like, not him either. And then they're like, and then four more guys walk through. And it wasn't any of them. Like, they don't even get an honorable mention. No name. These three, and then some dudes. Not them. The Lord rejects all of Jesse's sons because none of them meets the Lord's expectation. So what does they have to do? Hey, is this it? This all you got? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We'll not sit down till he arrives. Notice that David doesn't even get an invite to the dinner. They are so certain that, like, as they, as they, are, as they are considering this dinner, they don't know that they're going to be picking a new king. They notice that it doesn't even tell, he doesn't tell them that he's anoint, being anointed as king. They're just going to anoint this guy. And so it's not laying out. I, I don't think Jesse knew at the beginning that he was looking for a king, but he knew something special was going to happen. And David checks none of the boxes. David is so insignificant in the strata and the system of their family that he's not even invited to dinner. Because David checks none of the boxes necessary to qualify him for what's going on. He's the youngest of eight brothers. The tradition of the day demanded that opportunities be given to the older brother first, and then it filtered down by age. With seven brothers before him, the odds of it reaching David are slim, none, and less. A lot of people got to die before it's David's turn. Two, David isn't even invited to the banquet. He's not even worthy enough to to eat with them. Third, when David finally comes, David's not consecrated. Consecration was the process through which participants would be cleansed and formally dedicated for a particular purpose. This is important in an agrarian society. David has been out in the field working with stanky sheep all day, and Samuel's like, hey, just bring him in. He is the only one who has not been made worthy to be at the dinner and made suitable to be chosen for service. Not only does he not fit the the order of things based upon familial lineage, he doesn't fit the... He stinks! Instead, where is David? David is out humbly and obediently doing his father's will. He's caring for the sheep. Which is that not the calling that God gives him as the king? The calling isn't to be the poster child of Israel. The calling isn't to come in and and be the mighty warrior that wins all the battles. God is still going to do those things. He He is to come in and guide and shepherd the people of God in following their Lord. 
He is to obey the will of the Father, to obey the will of God Almighty. And interestingly enough, isn't it interesting that that's exactly the calling that God gives to us? When Peter's restored, what does Jesus say to him? Hey, Peter, do you love me? If you do, then feed my sheep. Three times, feed my sheep. See, we're not, we're not to build God's kingdom by building these, this grand uh, edifice, this, this grand system and structure. We are, we are called to be the kingdom of God by caring for the sheep of God's pasture. So in walks David. And it tells us, and it tells us in verse 12 that, that he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. I don't like that translation. I don't like it. In the King James, it tells us that, that he was ruddy in appearance. The dude just came from the field. Nobody is handsome after several days in the field. He comes in. What does ruddy mean? Ruddy actually means he had a red or dark complexion. You know what I think he might be saying here? Is that in walks David, the shepherd that's spending all the time in the field, and Samuel looks at him and goes, Really? He's a redneck. He, he's got red complexion. He's tanned. He's darkened. He's been in the sun. It makes sense. He's not big, God. He's the sheep tender. I, I genuinely believe that this is not meant to be in, sure, he's healthy, but I don't think it means that, that he, he looked the part, because we know he doesn't, that the people that looked the part, God had said no. I think the verse actually is saying, well, I guess if you've got to choose someone, he's good enough. God saw something, though, in David beyond the externals. I praise God that our potential isn't couched in our appearance, but in the status of our spirit. That it's not based upon what the world sees in us and how they evaluate us, how others think of us or what others say of us or their perception or, or their projection of what will happen in our lives and through our organizations and through our affiliations. But, but the value in what we bring is based upon what God has implanted within us, what is in our hearts. It's based on something more. It's a truth that we need to remember and learn well. The outworking of a person's life will be determined by the orientation of their hearts. The outworking of a person's life will be determined by the orientation of their hearts. Again, David clearly didn't look the part, but he was God's choice. Ergo, he was the correct choice. And so God has Samuel anoint David, this most unlikely of kings in front of his brothers, who by all indications were his betters. What an awesome moment that had to be. I won't lie to you. When I finished my doctorate, and this is one of my dreams, one of my dreams is to go back to First Baptist Elkhart and to speak in the stage on the platform of my home church and for them to introduce me as the Reverend Dr. Jeremy Myers. I, I, they can do that, and I will never go by doctor again in my life. I just want that moment of vindications. How did that taste in your mouth? He must have really turned his life around. No, how about this? How about God saw something in his life? God saw something in his heart that you didn't. And I think that's true. I need, you need to hear this from me. Each of you need to hear this from me. It doesn't matter, young, old, 
trained, untrained. God has a purpose and a plan for you. And though others may look at you and evaluate upon, based upon externals and, and things that they can see, God is not evaluating you. God does not have his plans based upon what others think, but based upon the status of your heart. And are you willing to follow him where he might lead and to do what he calls you to, whether or not it's comfortable or convenient or culturally in? Are you willing to follow God and serve however he needs you to do that you might take care of his sheep? Because I believe that God has a plan and a purpose for each of us that is bigger than we could ask or imagine on our own. But it, re- it involves us even moving beyond the perceptions. Us understanding this truth, that the outworking of our, per- our lives will be determined by the orientation of our hearts, not the externals and the abilities that everyone else tends to evaluate and judge us on. It's worth noting that from the moment on, that moment on, David was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what strikes me as interesting is that Saul had the same spirit but fought it. David receives the spirit and follows it from that day on with a few noted exceptions. Jesus tells us that the same will be true in our lives. Jesus says that no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart, and an evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The fruit of our lives, the truth of the produce that will come from us is not based upon the externals that people see but will be based upon the status of our hearts. Not the symbols of status or social approval based on externals. God sees the heart. And brothers and sisters, we need to learn to do the same. We need to learn to get beyond evaluating purely and almost exclusively at times based upon what these little windows show us. We need to continue to allow God's spirit to speak us and to, to us and follow his leading and his guidance Because if we continue to do what everyone else is doing, if we continue to do what worked over there or what worked over there or what seems to be good, we're always going to be going out half-cocked and working on incomplete information. We need to learn to lead with the heart, to follow with the heart, and to evaluate over time based upon what the heart manifests. As we continue to look at David, may we continue to learn this truth and to realize that God is bigger than the externals, and that God will move and do what God wants to do when we follow him in faith. Father God, I thank you for this truth of this scripture. Lord, I thank you for the truth that we are more than people say that we are, but that we are what you say we are, as we sung earlier. God, may we be convinced of that, and may we in humility and with confidence say, God, here we are. Send me, use me as you see fit. May we follow as you lead, do as you've called, and care for your sheep as you move us into different places by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.